will be as soon as that button is. Yep, we're good. We're on. Well, good morning, Southeast Iowa. Lee Klett and um, Dave Johnson, Mrs. Johnson's favorite son. Do you have any brothers? Dave! I do. I have one brother. Oh, well, then that may, that may be a false statement. You may not be her favorite son. I don't have to worry about that personally. I know. I'm trying to get mine. You're an only child? No, okay. no. I got a twin brother. I know, I know I'm not the favorite. It's uh, Thursday, Ju July 1st, and you're watching. Good morning, Southeast Iowa. Mr. Line. You did miss it. Somewhere. Well, he said he said it before, so we okay, were anyway, playing with your phone. I thought I was done. <laughs> with, apparently not. Hey, I understand that it's uh, fireworks are at a bare minimum. They can't find them. They can't sell them. They're not. Can't get them. There's. They're very scarce. Which a friend of mine sells them at high V. Is that right? Well, I tell you, when I heard that news, I was ecstatic. <laughs> Because uh, where I lived there, the fireworks started a week early and lasted a week beyond. Every night you could count on All I hear is tax revenue going off. Like, oh, man, my roads are going to be better. My schools are going to be better. I see all those tents everywhere. They're, they literally, they're in the uh, movie store parking lot. They're in the, or the, uh, the. Yeah, you used to see them Jeez. everywhere. Are you here? now, it's. Uh, Can you hear me now? It's rare. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to get right to it. Our guest, Keith Barony, writer from the Seinfeld and a friend to all the celebrities and an outstanding uh, uh, stand-up comic. You're on with the round guy in Good Morning Southeast Iowa, me and Lee. I've never met the round guy before, but I've seen video. Good morning, gents. Good morning. Keith, we're so, taking um, a talk with you. celebrities is, you know, you're, you're hilarious, Dave, because I watch you guys. I watch, you, uh, I watch your podcasts. And of course, I'm concerned for both your health, you know, because you seem to be on an all meat diet. I don't think you guys have had a vegetable in 20 years. Uh, you're, you're a good friend, Dave, and you're a nice guy, but a, a friend to celebrities is the exact opposite of who I am, which is why no one's heard of me, because I want nothing to do with Hollywood. I, I couldn't care less about Hollywood. Well, I would, uh, I would agree with you on some of that sentiment there. Keith, let me ask you about... Uh some of the series that you wrote for Seinfeld in particular, any episode in particular that stands out, we would re remember that you had a hand in writing. Yeah. Um, more than uh, more so a hand in, uh, inspiring than writing was the, uh, ugly baby episode. I've been doing a comedy routine about my brother having ugly babies for a few years. And it, it came up in conversation with Jerry and a couple other, you know, writers and, I, I was not feeling particularly proprietary about it, so I said, yeah, run with it if you can. So I've never, my brother has three kids, and I've never pointed out which is the ugly baby because uh, I don't want that person to be traumatized. But, um, yeah, it's it's based on one of my brother's kids. Um, but for the most part, what I did was I punched up jokes, um, you know, like uh, when they saw um, George... George's girlfriend, topless in the Hamptons. And, uh, you know, they had the one, and Kramer goes, uh, uh, yo, yo, ma, and Jerry says, Boutros, Boutros, golly. I, uh, I did that. So stuff like that, you know, just quick, quick fixes. <laughs> I've always thought that newborn babies look like Yoda. 
So I, yeah, I agree yoga with you. They're they're just yoga ugly. after a bar fight. Yeah. <laughs> to be to be fair, one of the the hottest toys out there right now is a baby Yoda. They made that thing look cute, which I couldn't imagine them doing. I can't either. I'd like to see one. Well, you know, I, I have found through COVID that misery loves company, and maybe uh, you guys aren't ugly enough to benefit from having an ugly doll in, in your arms that can contrast and make you look better. But there are a lot of people out there, especially trolling the, the, the uh, aisles at Walmart, who could probably benefit greatly from having an ugly baby in their, you know, doll in their cart. So, you know, you've got to consider the, the audience for that product. Keith, that's the entire reason that I do this show, so I can sit between these two guys and look good. Yes. We are. We are. This guy's never met a mirror he didn't like. <laughs> now, uh, Keith, Keith, everybody's got a favorite Seinfeld episode, and it sounds like you were right there at the epicenter of a good many uh, of those shows and the creation of, of some of those stories. Uh, mine is the, uh, the, uh, what, uh, the king of their own domain. I don't know if I have that. Oh, it, yeah, Matt, yeah. Master, master of your own, own domain. Yeah. Did you, were you involved with that? Because I thought that was <laughs> one of the classics because while everybody knew what, what they were talking about, they never really came out and said it. You know, um, I think that's. That's the majority cho uh, choice, uh, and I had nothing to do with that. I wish I could have bragged that I did, um, but you know, I a few years before he got his show, before he got the show, uh, Seinfeld and I had a discussion about the nature of the stand-up sets on the Johnny Carson Tonight Show. And I said to him, because you know, Seinfeld had when he had started out in the very, very early months, he dropped the f bomb a lot into his routine a lot because he was insecure he didn't have his stage legs yet you know and then it didn't take too long it was probably about two years in that he just swore he decided he made a conscious decision there's no point in the in, in using that word so you know be a better comedian and so he you know he developed a work ethic thankfully and so when he would go on the tonight show he you know he didn't he, he was already a clean comedian and i guess he didn't really think that that, was, that, that, the, that landscape was going to change. And uh, then Gary Shandling went on. And this, my conversation with Seinfeld happened before Gary Shandling went on. And Gary Shandling did a, a series of jokes. He didn't use any bad words, but it was extremely suggestive. Uh, I remember one of the lines was, he, he, he said, now that he's got money, Gary, this is Gary Shanley talking, he said, now that he has money, uh, he's finally able to fulfill all those childhood fantasies he's always had. Like, he, want, he always wanted bunk beds when he was a little boy. So he wound up, as an adult, buying bunk beds. And one night, he was in a singles bar, and he met a woman, and he took her back to his place. And he said to her, you know, well, would you like the top or the bottom? And she said... Uh, I'll take the bottom. And he said, well, if I'm going to be on the top, i got to go get a ladder. And she didn't know he had a bunk bed. And she said to him, well, somebody thinks a lot of themselves, don't they? You know, <laughs> So it was stuff like that and that would I don't think would have passed muster five years earlier. So I don't, I don't think I would have ever, you know, ha imagined that we could get away with that episode. It, it took hardier, more courageous people than me, I think, to, to say to themselves, hey, let's have a masturbation contest 
and, and put it on network television. I mean, that's kind of stunning. I'm out. Because <laughs> <laughs> I said the M word? Sorry about that. No, no. I, I'm just you, using uh, Kramer's line from, oh, yeah, from yeah, that yeah. show. <laughs> yeah. That I, was so brilliant, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. Classic. <laughs> Here I was thinking of the episode where uh, they play the imaginary chess game where Jerry is playing against Jerry on um, brain versus penis. I love playing chess, but I just don't see me doing that. Um, my brain does all the work. <laughs> There's a choice between my brain and my penis. My penis wins every time. <laughs> I think if I had to pick one, um, I would go with the JFK assassination recreation. With Keith, oh, yeah. Keith Hernandez? <laughs> say that again. Did you ask me to say it again? No. No, the, the, the episode with the Kennedy, with the, the one with Keith Hernandez. Yes, exactly right. Right. The second spitter? <clears throat> yeah. That would be one magic loogie. <laughs> well done, in, well done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, some of them. But getting, are, back, are to, just, getting back to the contest episode, wasn't it amazing? I mean, how they made it believable that Elaine wouldn't win. You yeah. know, when you because the whole, you know, the whole idea is that you know men are walking around in an excited sexual state anyway, and it would take so much to get a woman. So they had to make it be, you know, John F. Kennedy Jr. They had to, they had to throw in all of these. All of these, you know, ways to push her to the precipice. Otherwise, it wouldn't have held up as a believable theme. You know, would have distracted from the rest of the episode. And that's the kind of stuff you have to think about. I used to have a, a flight attendant roommate when I lived in Manhattan, which is where I grew up. And she would, you know, between trips, of course, she was you know, she'd stay at the apartment. And I'd have guys over to, for writing sessions. One of which was Colin Quinn. Colin and I were buddies in the early days, and. And, and she said that she was shocked at how much we talked about the psychology of what audiences will think we said, what audiences will hear, whether we said it or not, what audiences will react, how they'll react to stuff. So there's a lot of that going on behind the scenes with comedy that I think a lot of people don't get. Uh, Keith, I'll give you an example, uh, <clears throat> and, and you'll, you may or may not know this. I was uh, looking through uh, a website that every month they have an auction of uh, autographs and memorabilia and I was looking through that once and one of the uh, pieces of memorabilia they had was a legal pad that uh, Jerry Seinfeld's handwritten notes were, were on this thing two or three pages and it was of the the uh, the show of the master of his domain. Uh -huh. All of his handwritten notes, and and uh, I I paid attention to. I thought, gosh, that'd be kind of a unique souvenir to have of, as I said, one of my favorite episodes. Sure. So I kept uh, track of it. I thought if it doesn't sell for that much, I would try to buy it. And it quickly occurred to me I, I just couldn't afford it. Do you know what it ended up selling for? I'll guess twenty six K. No, no, you're a little you're a little high. Uh oh. seven thousand. Oh. Seven thousand and and I thought that is as unique a a piece of memorabilia as 
as you're going to find if, in fact, you're a big fan of Seinfeld. Right, that's the key, because out in L.A., that's a very standard celebrity donation to fundraisers, is a, is a, a, a signed copy of a version of a sitcom episode uh, with notes on it. So that's a very, you know, but you're right, if you're a Seinfeld fanatic, as you appear to be, you know, that would, that you, that's, your, that's your holy grail, for sure. Oh, yeah, and it, um, make, it, it makes sense that, like you said, if, if that had been available in L.A. or people there were aware of it, I'm sure it would have brought 26K. Well, yeah, I mean, what happened was he donated that probably to a charity fundraiser, and they auctioned it off, and they got their money, and then the owner of it, you know, at some point said, you know, what am I holding on to this for? Let me put it on eBay, and, and let's see how much of my you know how much i can recoup from my from the original price i paid something like that you know because people get excited right away and then they realize you know they run out two three months later they run out of people they can show it to and then it, it, it either goes up in a frame on the wall and you walk people by it or you uh, or you resell it you re-gift it as seinfeld used to uh, used to say keith so, t- tell us a little bit about because it sounds like you were so involved with that show that that you and Jerry became close, became friends, and and it was the- actually the reverse of that because I was in the stand-up world. Uh, he he and he and I worked together first in Florida, where I was just telling somebody something interesting uh, online that the first time I worked with Seinfeld, he. It was a series of shows uh, in the same venue, and he sneezed on stage, and. Um, he said to me afterwards, and he'd been doing stand-up maybe 11, 12 years at that point, he said, you know, I've never sneezed on stage until tonight. And I didn't take notice of it, but I've been doing stand-up now for 37 years, and I've never sneezed on stage. And that is statistically improbable. So clearly there's something going on with that you know, physio-psychological thing that I'm not quite sure of. But he and I bonded because we were stand-ups. You know, stand-ups are very... We have a very uh, a kind of a militaristic attitude the way, you know, veterans do, which is, you know, veterans think that civilians just will never understand them. And they're right, you know, and, and similarly, comedians think that about non-comedians, you know. So he brought me on to the show to punch up some jokes. And, and also I, I backdoored it a little bit because there was a guy named Joey Gutierrez who was writing a lot of the monologue jokes for the show. He's never been credited. And he wrote a lot of the monologues that you would see, like they cut back to sign in a comedy club and he'd be doing and you know I thought it was hilarious that Seinfeld who was a stand-up who loved the, the art of stand-up comedy whenever he would do jokes in the comedy club he would never make it look like it went well <laughs> you know that was like his creative choice to uh, to kind of convey to the audience how much you have to go through before you know you're famous and people are laughing at everything you say and so um, I kind of, with another friend, I helped Joey Gutierrez punch up and do, do some uh, stand-up writing. So that's kind of how I insinuated myself. But he saw me, Seinfeld saw me and said, hey, maybe you can, you know, help me out. And back, this was so back in the day that I was faxing uh, jokes, punch-up jokes uh, from New York where I was still living. I was faxing it out to California. So, um, so I'm not really, I'm, I'm not at all in touch with him. I don't, because again, I don't do the celebrity thing. I, th- I think it's honestly kind of wrong for comedians to idol worship anyone. And even Seinfeld agrees with that. I mean, if you've ever seen that clip of him at an award show for advertise, no, I don't know if it was that. It was HBO. Yeah, some kind of uh, HBO big gala. And he said comedians, you know, should be, 
in the back of the room making fun of every every celebrity. We shouldn't be, you know, part of that world because that's not who we are. Keith, uh, I of late have noticed, and in in I saw an interview where he admitted it himself, and I met him once, and uh, he was kind of uh, aloof and unfriendly. Is that? It makes sense that's not how you know him, but is that perhaps the aftermath of such a successful career and the TV and whatnot? But he he comes off a little... Cold. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, no, I think he has that quality for sure. But I also think that when people meet a celebrity, they decide about that person based on the 40 seconds they're with them. And I don't think any of us would hold up to that sort of scrutiny. Then add to it the fact that basically the guy's on the $5 bill at this point. I mean, he's he's so much a part of the American culture. So there's really nothing comparable. You know, you can't really look at anything this guy. I mean, like I used to say about the, you know, the Beatles, I used to say, shouldn't the Beatles be allowed to kill people? I mean, really, they, their lives are so vastly different from any other kind of human being. You know, and I feel like Seinfeld's in that stratosphere. Now. I could just see, I could just see John Lennon uh, walking up and stabbing somebody, and then saying, "Diplomatic immunity." Look, <laughs> 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 well, uh, Keith, when I, I met, I met Jerry, as I said, and I, I had a uh, magazine, him being Elvis on the cover. Ah, and, yeah, and I, I remember that. I said, Rolling Stone, right? Right, yeah, and I said. Uh, I asked him to sign it. He said, fine. I asked him if I could get a photo with him, and he said no. And I've always wondered why he was agreeable to sign my magazine, but for the photo, he said, yeah, no. And I've heard since uh, then he's tough to get a photo with. Do you know, do you know what his, his stance is on that? Well, I think it's – I think I'm remembering this right, that it's um, – the photo implies that you have a relationship. The signature just implies that you've met. Steve Martin uh, walk, walks around with cards. And he doesn't sign autographs. He walks around with cards that read, you, um, that read, I have met Steve Martin. And I think it becomes, at some point, it becomes very important to the celebrity that they insinuate some sort of integrity into the process. So, uh, I don't know, your, 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 your request is, is a traditional one. And he, as an artist, he's trying to, you know, rethink it. That's what artists are supposed to be doing, is rethinking everything we take for granted, you know. So um, it's just, it wasn't malicious. It was, you know, you wanted one thing. He was willing to give something else. But, you know, I wouldn't read too much into it. But there is a coldness to him. And, and, and I, don't, I have no doubt that you could pick up on that in 40 seconds. But on the other hand, I mean, come on. You know, he wakes up and it's... You know, limousine to, to to private airplane to you know penthouse and and he's trying to. I mean, he sees his, he stays as grounded as I think is possible. He keeps going back to stand up. He doesn't hide out in his mansion. He doesn't you know he doesn't uh, he he keeps he hangs out in clubs. I mean, for crying out loud. So you know, it's 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 a it's it's apples and oranges, don't you think? I, I completely understand. Dave, you got something? Yeah, uh, 
Now, now, round guy, he mentioned some uh, memorabilia from the Seinfeld. I'm actually wearing some memorabilia from Married with Children. Uh, I have the actual uh, high school jersey of Al Bundy from the time when he scored five touchdowns oh, in nice. a high school game. Nice. So have you ever been on any other other uh, sitcoms, or do you have any uh, Married with Children type stories or Ed Harris stories or anything? Um, no, I, uh, well, I, I should say I wrote for uh, Politically Incorrect with Bill Maher. Oh. Um, and uh, <laughs> what before the show ever aired, the first version of the show ever aired, um, we did like run-throughs. And Scott Carter, who's the executive producer, he knew me from the comic strip in New York City. And so he he hired me to be a, a fake a panelist so Bill could sort of, you know, get up up and running on, on what he what his voice was and how he was gonna react to people. And I the, f the first time I did it I, I thought, Oh, I really I really effed this up. I was not good at all. And for some reason Bill really liked what I did and I had no idea what it was he liked. I couldn't couldn't possibly imagine. And so then, the, so they kept me on for an extra one, which they weren't planning to do. And I, and I, made some joke about how, well, you know, that's a that's a, a bad way to spend your time. The only other way I could think of that's worse is to be the host of a comedy roundtable. So I took a <laughs> shot at Bill, right there, you know, and I was never heard from again as as a panelist. Like apparently, I had crossed the line with Bill. But I think that's again, I think that's what comedians are supposed to do. Is we're supposed to you know, tear down the BS, you know. Um, but I, for years afterwards, I wrote stuff. But I, I'm a, I've always been a conservative. So, you know, all the jokes that they ever took from me were like, you know, celebrity jokes. I did some joke about Ray Charles, you know, who I'd actually opened for Ray Charles once. And, you know, he's not a comedian. So when he said into the microphone, this young cat is the best comedian I've ever seen, and it got a huge, <laughs> you know, laugh from the audience, I didn't, you know, it was a hacky joke, but what, it's Ray Charles for crying out loud. Who cares if it's a hacky joke, you know? So, um, uh, you know, that was the kind of stuff I was, I, I would write jokes about celebrities and that would get on the air on his show. But other than that, like actual politics, they just wanted none of what I had to say, you know? So, uh, you know, it's exactly what you would expect. We're talking with Keith, Keith I apologize. How do I pronounce your last name? Hey, listen, man, you're a nice man. I appreciate you asking because um, even, I'll tell you the truth. Even my family, I think, says it wrong. <laughs> so, but <laughs> we say it as barony. Um, but whenever I meet people of Hungarian heritage, they're always, they always say it a different way than us. So I don't think it's authentic to Hungary, but it's, it's the way we've said it since we've been in the U.S. But I think they say barany, uh, which is, I think it's the reason it's important is that one of my, my dad's uncle was a Nobel Prize winner, and it's like a source of pride to a lot of Hungarians. As it should be. You, yeah. What was the, yeah. the prize for? Um, medicine. Uh, they actually had to reach him at the front of World War One to tell him he had won the Nobel Prize because he was a medic uh, in the army and uh, he had won, he won the Nobel Prize for uh, he was the guy that figured out that the balance mechanism in the human body is in the ear you know that that's okay. which of course now you know not only does it help with that but it helps with uh, and not just you know with um, uh, oh, it's escaping me now when you ha when you have a level. And uh, the bubble, you know, that the bubble on the level thing. But also, it's uh, it, it it has a lot of applications in space travel. 
because uh, training astronauts to orientate themselves in a, they call it, they actually call it the barony chair at NASA, and it's the chair where they, it like turns them all different ways to try and, yeah, so. That's that, awesome, that's, that's, that's quite an accomplishment. Yeah. You heard it here on Good Morning Southeast Island. So it's Keith Barony. Yes, sir. Uh, one of the writers, one of the uh, various writers for the Seinfeld uh, uh, series. Do you keep up with uh, other cast members from the show? Have you, do you run into them? Or did you develop a friendship with any of them that makes you uh, visit with them on a somewhat regular basis? Um, I did used to run into uh, Wayne Knight, who played Newman, okay. uh, in Los Angeles a lot. We used to shop at the same Trader Joe's. And um, I, uh, I can tell you that if you ever run into Wayne Knight, uh, if you say to him, hello, Newman, he won't love that. <laughs> <laughs> but, now, are you do? being I mean, on the level or are you setting us up? No, I'm on the level, man. <laughs> but honestly, I'm the worst guy to ask about this kind of stuff because I just, like, as Dave knows, and, it, you know, I'm in Dave's camp. I'm not, I'm just not a, a celebrity worshiper, you know? I mean, I, I think uh, one of my favorite lines in all of comedy is Woody Allen talked about the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, and he said, uh, he wrote about this, like, in the 60s or the 70s. He said, the authenticity of the Dead Sea Scrolls is in question because 38 times the word Oldsmobile appears. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you can make fun of the Dead Sea Scrolls, I think you can make fun of a sitcom star, you know? So I just I don't particularly hold these people in high esteem. They're doing what they want to do, and they're getting paid, overpaid for it. You know, so I don't really know. I don't look to hang out with... I mean, I, look, I don't know... My last name is Barony, and Ray Romano played Ray Barone, and I knew Ray before, long before he had a television show. So I don't know if he knew someone from his neighborhood named Barone, or if he decided to take my last name, but I've, I've not seen him since that show, so I have no way to ask him. So I, it's just not, it's not who I am. I'm just not in the, I'm not in the mainstream on this. I, I, I step into, I back into stuff all the time. I, I wrote for the Emmys because I was at a comedy club and Gary Shandling was in the green room where I was, and I said something funny, and he said, oh, that's funny. Hey, do you want to help me? I've got to do some monologue jokes at the Emmys. I'm like, absolutely. And that's, that's how it all happens. It's never, it's never me. I mean, if, if, you, if, you, if you waited for me to, like, you know, pursue something, you'd be waiting for the rest of your life. So if you, if you bumped into a celebrity, the likelihood is you're not going to ask them for an autograph, right? Oh, right, yeah. No, I was never in a million years, no. So no, who's the not most? There's anything wrong with it? Hey, right. you know what I did there with the Seinfeld. What? Uh, <laughs> who would be the one of some of the biggest celebrities you have run into that I, I would want the Rodder? Bob Hope. Yeah, Sorry? Bob Hope. Yeah, he was with he worked yeah. with Bob Hope. I was going to bring okay. that up. Brought it out. Yeah, I opened once for Bob Hope at Florida Atlantic University. He had seen me at a comedy club that was that opened that was opened and run and owned by a woman that used to sing as a, his one of his opening acts. And for some reason, she opened a comedy club. And as a favor to her, he came down on her first weekend, and I was appearing there on his on their first weekend. And I guess Bob Hope liked what he saw, and he asked me to open for him a couple weeks later at Florida Atlantic University. And again, that's where I kind of first learned that there are certain people whose lives we just can't relate to. And so, 
you know, you can't really hold them to a normal standard. And that was one of them. I mean, I felt for sh- that this was, this was exactly the same feeling I would have if I was hanging out with whoever was the president of the United States. I mean, this dude, the room parted when he walked in, you know. I mean, it was, it was really in, intense change of energy every time he showed up somewhere. I'm talking about Bob Hope, you know. So, uh, yeah, it was – and he was really good, you know, because I grew up with him in that era where he was doing – you know, two, three specials a year, and they weren't particularly funny anymore. And as you know, he was one of the greatest comedians. I mean, his films were hilarious. His monologues were great for 30, 40 years. But, you know, if you grew up in the 70s, as I did, it was like, okay, uh, he's an old white guy telling old white guy jokes, I guess. They're sort of stale, you know, and then you see him live, and holy hell, he was really terrific. Is it is it true, Keith, that you wrote the line for Bob Hope that but I want to tell you. But I want to tell you. <laughs> Did you ever hear um, the stories about how Johnny Carson was upset with Bob Hope? No. Please share that. Yeah. Uh, well, I think there are videos of it online. It's Conan O'Brien um, met Johnny Carson when Conan O'Brien was just a writer on The Simpsons before he had his own show. And uh, Carson came in to do his own voice because, you know, they were using the Johnny Carson as a character in one of their episodes. So he did the voiceover, and then he hung around because he had been retired for a couple of years, and I guess he was excited about the prospect of being in a room with a bunch of comedy writers. And so he was, he just hung around, and, you know, they were bouncing ideas off of one another, and all of a sudden he started talking about how Bob Hope used to really annoy him. And apparently it was like, you know, he was this guy that had done everything, everything, you know. I mean, he was a global, international superstar. And Carson's like, um, so I hear you, so you, you were just in Vietnam with the troops. Tell me about that. And, and Bob Hope would always answer something like, yeah, that was kind of crazy, eh? You know, just give him nothing. He would give him nothing. <laughs> and Carson was, like, furious because, you know, he Carson had, had idolized Bob, a guy like Bob Hope and thought, oh, my God, this is really going to go great. And then Bob Hope was just like, you know, nothing. There was nothing bouncing off of him at all. He <laughs> was just, you know, there to just, like, kill time. Or oh, and then also, as it turns out, he I don't know how this would work out, but he would use Carson's audience to do his, to test out the monologue jokes that he was going to do on his special. So, like, I don't know how, if he did it from the panel or if he did it by actually standing, you know, with a microphone uh, during the commercial break. I I don't know. Someone's got to look into it. But, yeah, I guess it was, you know, we would, of course, right, think that, you know, Carson and Bob Hope are probably buddies. They're comedy legends. They're from relatively the same era. But apparently there was some, uh, there was some friction. You know, Johnny Carson is the number one comic from Iowa, and Round Guy's number two. Wait a second. Carson's a Nebraska boy. He was uh, in Iowa before he was in Nebraska. Oh, he was born in Iowa? That's interesting. Corning, Iowa. Yeah, but when he when he found out that you needed to be able to speak, he moved to Nebraska, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was painful. Uh, I loved it. Oh, that was Keith. Keith Barony, writer of uh, comedy shows, Seinfeld in particular. I, I'm confident you'll know this story. You mentioned Johnny Carson. There's, and I is, can't remember the, the fellow's name, but a comic 
who one night at a bar tried to help Johnny Carson because he was just hammered and wasn't going to be able to drive home. And this comic helped him out to his car and drove him home. But while there were still some other comics in, in the room, they saw this guy leave with Carson and they all nudged each other and said, hey, must gonna, there's a party at Carson's house. Come on, let's all go. Oh, God. <laughs> so, suddenly there's a parade of cars that pull up to Carson's house as he's getting out. And he believes that the guy that was helping him, you know, spilled the beans and let everybody in on it. And he started cussing the guy. And, you know, and it, the guy uses that story in his act. But as I said, I can't think of who it is. Are you familiar with that story? I'm not at all familiar. I could throw out some names just based on, I don't know, was it Kipadada that he had been in? I, I might know it if I heard it, but that's not ringing a bell for me. But here the guy thought... It wasn't thought, Pete Fountain, was it? Uh, I'm sorry? It wasn't Pete Fountain, was it? No, I don't know. Okay. But the guy okay. yeah, undoubtedly no thought he was going to help Carson, and Carson was going to be so appreciative he saved him from a, a DWI <clears throat> that he was going to invite him yeah. to guest host the show, and suddenly <laughs> this guy's career was going to go through the roof. And instead, Sounds like Rupert Pupkin. Yeah, instead uh, Carson just about beat the snot out of, out of him, at least verbally yeah. anyway. That's, you know, Joe Namath had a very a famous, um, uh, he was very famously drunk on a football broadcast one time. So people are, are you know, easy to say, they're, it's easy for people to say, well, you know, who is Joe Namath to talk about anybody else's drinking? But Joe Namath will tell you, he has told people publicly that Johnny was a, a mean drunk, a mean drunk, and I actually several people have said that about him. So that's the story is not surprising, but I've never heard it. So uh, you're a big Mets fan, aren't you? I was a Mets. Well, look, I was eight years old in 1969. I yeah, mean, that what was, did he uh, know? That was about as heady as it gets. Brown <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, guy here. He's a, a Yankees guy. Uh, Are you really? Yeah, and I'm. I'm older than eight. He, he's he's wearing a Yankees hat right now. The Yan that is that is Yankees T-shirt. So you like you like when they buy their championships. You like when a team buys them, huh? I have no problem with that. Now, see, uh, I'm I'm not a Mets fan, but I'm decked out in Cubs today because it's red, white, and blue. My jersey's white with the red and blue stripes, and I've got the blue hat on with the red um, letter C on it. And I've been a nice. Cubs, I was, I've been a Cubs fan since I was seven, so. I got a I got a compliment in Walmart just yesterday because I was wearing a Chicago Cubs T-shirt. So uh, oh, I knew we were in Chicago for five years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was a Cubs fan even when I was a crazed eight-year-old New York Mets fan because I thought, well, they're never good at the same time. So I really am not going to have any conflict at all. They're often for both of these teams. They're often neither one of them good at all. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Now, where, where do you do you live I'm in Chicago, the, Keith? I live in Utah. Utah? That is the yes, epicenter of comedy. <laughs> hey, if you can't write jokes being married to six to 12 women, I mean, then you're just not trying hard enough. <laughs> did, did. It's, it's good you're still alive. Tell them a little bit about your, uh, about your growing up in, is it Manhattan where you grew up? 
Yeah, I grew up in Manhattan. Oh, God, what a, yeah. I, I never took to the place, but I did everything you could imagine. I was a bicycle messenger. I was a taxi driver for two and a half days. Two and a half days? <laughs> yeah, because you had to, after three days, they gave you like a temporary thing, but after three days, you had to be serious about it. So you either, if you, after three days, you either quit or you paid a large fee and you took a test and all this other stuff. So you could do it on, on a trial basis for three days. Now, I've driven in New York. I would not want to be a New York taxi cab driver. You know, do you guys remember the Seinfeld routine about taxi cabs? Uh, I do. Drawing a blank. Yeah, he says, um, he, there's so much he, he, he there's so much good stuff about it. He says, you get into these taxis and and I don't know, because there's a, like a window, a sliding glass window between you and the driver, you, you, you're willing to let them subject you to stuff that you would never subject your own self to. The guys, you know, up on the sidewalk, you're like, wow, that looked dangerous. I would never do that in my vehicle. And you think, then you think to yourself the craziest thought. You think, well, he must know what he's doing. <laughs> he is the professional taxi driver. You know, he's got a taxi driver's license. He says, you know, I don't even know what you need to get a taxi driver's license. Apparently, all you need is a face and a last name with 12 consecutive consonants in them. He says, you can't even report the guy. It's like, yeah, I want to report my driver. His name was Amal and then the symbol for Boron. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a pretty hectic... Uh, so, yeah. uh, you you grew up in a, a quite a orthodox Jewish uh, environment, didn't you? Yes, and let me tell you something. The Mormons out here love the Jews because, first of all, they believe that you can baptize people after they're dead. So that's fine by them. And then, secondly, they think that they're the lost tribes of Israel. So they connect heavily with it. But, yeah, uh, orthodox Jews, yeah, that was uh, – they're not – they're not no longer my demographic. <laughs> I do still market to like temples and synagogues, but I don't. If, if I don't market to Orthodox, only the uh, the more relaxed, more modern versions. The That's kind of you. I'd like to be one of them relaxed ones. I couldn't go without bacon. <laughs> Well, that's fair. I mean, if I grew up in Iowa, I probably couldn't go out, couldn't go along without bacon either. You know, I wonder about that. Let me ask you guys something. The first, when I, when I was starting to, to understand America a little bit and I was going out and doing tours and stuff, and this is many, many decades back, um, I stepped out of a, a, a cheapy motel I was staying at and I got a whiff of something and it about knocked me over, seriously. And it turns out it was a pig farm, you know, and I, and I had never smelled that much manure that intensely, you know, at any one time. And now it's like a sweet smell of success to me. I just love that stuff. Yeah, I just, I, I know I'm where I want to be when I, when I smell that kind of stuff when I'm driving down the roads or whatever. And I'm just wondering, is there anything that could shake an Iowa boy's, like, sense of smell or whatever and kind of make you go, oh, God, because, I mean, <laughs> and, and also... Second part of this question is, why is it pig farms? I, I, I'm so ignorant. I'm, I'm under the impression that farms is where you grow fruits and vegetables, and, and, and ranches is where you, you, take, you care for mammals. So why is it a pig farm? Well, the short answer for that is most farms have more than just 
just the animals on them. They they have or they've got to grow feed too because they've got to feed the animals. There goes a lot. A lot of the corn that we grow in Iowa goes straight back into the pigs and the cows. Ah. But um, as, far, as far as the smells concerned, baby uh, um, baby feces. That's that's something that'll bring ah. an Iowa boy to his knees. Don't ask me why. <laughs> I could. Um, I've I've worked on those um, hog farms and uh, been knee deep in. Uh, um, pig excrement and doesn't phase me at all, but change it a baby's diaper and I'll gag. <laughs> and who's to blame? There's a couple Iowa sayings. One about the smell of pig shit is uh, smells oh, like money. money. Smells like money. Uh, and yeah. uh, the other thing about a cow, cow only eats grass, oats. So basically, he's just a, re- a steak is just a recycled salad. salad. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> The recycled salad. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks, guys. I, I didn't. I, I knew I could count on you for some kind of answer. Appreciate yeah. that. Keith, when I got to Iowa, which was decades ago, uh, and I would hear that phrase, "You smell that? That's the smell of money." We'd be passing by a pig farm, and well, that's the smell of money. And I would turn to the guy and say, "You need to get a new wallet." <laughs> <laughs> hey, round guy, he's a he's a transplanted New Yorker like yourself. Say that again, Dave. I'm sorry. He, uh, round guy's originally from New York too. Oh, you are. That explains the Yankee thing. Hey, let me ask you, round guy. Uh, there used to be a comedy hip hop duo that made its way onto the Johnny uh, John Stewart show, uh, the first talk show he had, and one of the guys was Round Guy. Was that you, or do you have a lawsuit going? No. What's happening here? No, uh, I believe that was Red Johnny and the Round Guy. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I couldn't remember that. A music act, and I don't know what year they uh, they first came up with that, but I've been. It started back when I first started to get into comedy, and I was I was pretty heavy set then. I weighed a lot more then than I do now. Uh huh. Um, and, and somebody, they asked me how I wanted to be introduced. And I was doing a lot of fat jokes at the time. And then they they uh, asked me, like I said, what, what do you want to be introduced as? And I thought, well, I don't want to use my real name in case I offend somebody so bad they want to track me down. <laughs> Smart. And I thought... Uh, I'd been, I'd heard from so many people that had said, oh, we were at the comedy club last night, this guy or this gal, they were funny. And you'd say, well, what was their name? They go, I can't remember. So I thought as a result of that, I'd use a nickname and I just stopped and thought, round guy. And and I stuck with that ever since. And I I had never heard of this duo uh, prior to that. I did afterwards, and I, I thought, well, I, if they got it from me, fine. If I inadvertently got it from them, I, you know, I never I never heard about any lawsuits. You didn't get a cease way. and desist. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. No, I, I meant you suing them, not them suing you. But, you know, uh, yeah, I was just curious because I, I, Howard Feller was John Stewart's sidekick. Howard Feller's kind of this Frankenstein-looking dude. He's a very sweet guy, but uh, anyway, I knew him, so I was always sort of hyper-aware of the guests that were on that show, so I was just oh, curious, but thanks. So, you know, you reminded me, Brown Guy, that there are there is that danger in stand-up of offending people so much. I had one incident 
one in all of the years where I actually felt like someone was trying to to injure me because of my stand-up comedy show, physically injure me. And it was a very big guy. I mean, like he was like Jaws in the in the Bond James Bond movie, <laughs> yeah. like that side. Yeah, yeah. And and um, here's how I knew I was in trouble. This was my opening line. It was it was a Christmas party for Snap-on tools, right? And I said, um, "Wow, Snap-on tools." Uh, I I didn't I never knew. Uh, all the things that you guys did. I didn't know you made tools. I knew you made calendars, but I had no idea you made them. And apparently, the people like working on the line, making this freaking tools, and I, they took great offense to it. And so 40 minutes, I mean, some woman was like grabbing the mic out of my hand. I mean, it was just a crazy night. But um, I think it's a real consideration, you know, when you're a stand-up is how, how to, you know, stay safe afterwards. No, I've said so much worse about Snap-on because uh, every time we see one of their vans roll by, because um, it's a white panel van, it's a giant panel van, um, you know, like uh, no windows on the sides, you know, the stereotypical pedophile van. Um, <laughs> oh. Well, but, but with the, char- the prices that they're charging you for their tools, they call it, we call it a rape van. <laughs> isn't that a redundancy though i mean aren't all vans rape vans uh, really <laughs> they could be yeah <laughs> well fellas it's been a pleasure chatting with you yeah, yeah well we've been on the phone with keith barony a writer from seinfeld a good friend of mine thank you so much for for calling Dave, i miss a, you buddy real good segment though what was that Dave, I miss you, buddy. I look forward to seeing you soon. All right. Well, hey, uh, Keith, before we let you go, promise uh, that you'll let us talk with you again down the road. Oh, I'd love to. Thank you. Thank Perfect. you, Ranga. I appreciate it. Perfect. All right. All right. No soup for you. <laughs> Thanks, gents. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> we had the Japanese soup Nazi on earlier. Oh, he hung uh, up. Anyway, uh, that was a great uh, visit with uh, the round guy. We got a couple more. We got three more segments today, so uh, we'll get this. We'll finish this one up, and we'll get right back with another one. Yeah, he had to go. I'm not. It's not.